Hey everyone, this is Brian, the host of the Craft Hot Sauce Podcast. I'm excited to bring you this interview with Caroline Pam and Tim Wilcox of Kitchen Garden Farm in Sunderland, Massachusetts. When people find out that I have my own hot sauce company uh, and also run the website crafthotsauce.com where we have lots of different hot sauces, over, over 200, and I've shared all these different stories from hot sauce makers, people are always really curious and ask me, what is my favorite hot sauce? I tell them this kind of corny joke, but it's also very true, that that's like asking me which child of theirs is their favorite. Um, cause oftentimes it depends. I don't have kids yet, uh, but it depends <laughs> on the situation. Uh, and it certainly, uh, certainly depends on, on, on the, what I'm eating. But if I had to pick one, it's gotta be kitchen garden farm sriracha because it, it's very simple yet delicious. It's also a seed to sauce, hot sauce, meaning that they grow, uh, what they actually put into the hot sauce, which is really cool. And they also have a really passionate and super friendly crew that I've gotten to know over the years. So for those of you in the New England area, I highly suggest you come down to Chili Fest. Uh, It's a celebration of chilies, food, hot sauce, music, community, which takes place every September in Western Mass. Uh, They also have a hot sauce competition where anyone can enter their hot sauce into a blind taste test competition. They have lots of wonderful food and music and so many peppers that are so pretty and have such a a unique, crazy wide range of of tastes and flavors um, that are all grown by the folks at Kitchen Garden Farms. So before we get into the interview, I do have a quick message from our sponsor, Anton Parr, uh, that goes out to hot sauce makers. You work really hard to perfect that hot sauce recipe, and once you find it, you got to make sure it's consistent. And a big part of consistency is viscosity. Simply put, how thick is your hot sauce? We've all been there before where the sauce is too thin, that you pour half a bottle out. And we've also had sauces that are way too thick, and you're suddenly banging the bottom of the hot sauce like an old glass ketchup bottle. But with the Visco QC from Anton Parr, it's not only the industry standard quality control viscometer for major food companies, it's also the easiest to use. So if you have no scientific background like me, Visco QC can be set up in minutes, and before you know it, you'll be using the same viscometer used by a big brand competition. You know your hot sauce is perfect, so with the Visco QC from Anton Parr, you can make sure that's perfect for everyone else too. To learn more about the Visco QC and Anton Parr, find the link in the show notes for this episode. Okay, now let's get into our interview with Tim and Caroline of Kitchen Garden Farm. Caroline and Tim, thank you so much for taking your time and coming on the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've been trying to have you guys on, but just schedules and everything uh, have been a little bit crazy, but excited to have you on here and, and just want to say thank you just for being kind of such an inspiration to uh, me and a lot of other hot sauce folks in the industry just through Chili Fest and, and just seeing, it's been awesome seeing you all grow. Um, but kind of one thing that 
since we're in the winter and it sounds like you, your crew has the, the week off this year, um, Carolina, I, I read uh, kind of a journal entry or a, a journal that you wrote in, in 2009, just kind of talking about um, your, your winter analysis. And, and I know things have been different every single year uh, as you've been growing and scaling. Um, but could you kind of give me a sense of some of the things that you have on kind of your, your winter checklist and, and things that you're doing um, with your analysis every winter and planning? Yeah. And that's exactly why we gave the crew the week off is because when we've been in production mode, just cranking it out um, as the farm and the hot sauce and salsa production has just become a year round full on endeavor. Um, we don't have time to focus and do this analysis that is so essential to us making the right decisions and making our plans for the coming season without shutting down operations for a couple of days. So that's very much what we're entirely immersed in this week, which includes, um, you know, a lot of parts that Tim actually spends a lot of the time doing, um, just figuring out what we made. And so I'm going to focus first mostly on the value added and the hot sauce and salsa, but like, what did we make? How fast has it been selling? What was the schedule like day by day? What did we do? How much were we able to do every day in harvest and processing and preserving season? And if we were to this year more than ever, it's just been such intense demand and sales at a much rap, more rapid pace than ever before. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to figure out if sales were to continue the way we've seen in 2020 into this year. How much would we need to make next year in order to like not sell out of our products in 2022? Yeah, I mean, that's a really important thing to realize for our operation because we are the growers and the manufacturers. The timeline is like two years. You know, the decisions we're making this week about what we're going to seed in the greenhouse in March and plant out in the field in May and harvest in September and October and preserve for manufacturing the following March, yeah, April, like, May, June, yeah, July. This, this time next year into, you know, we won't see that revenue potentially until, you know, 18 plus months from wow. the time we seed. So <clears throat> the other uh, like big thing this time of year um, is figuring out our crop plan, which is just everything from like, you know, okay, we're, we're farming 70 acres now. So we have, you know, lots of different crops that we grow. It's not just peppers and tomatoes, it's onions, it's greens that we sell wholesale. Um, kale, broccolini, I don't know. So we're, we have to find out, you know, make our field maps where everything's going on the farm yep. uh, and a, get a good rotation so that we're not planting the same crops where we planted them last year. Um, then figure out, you know, exactly how much seed we need to buy and buying seed. I mean, this year it's crazy because, you know, since March of last year, all of the seed companies have been like selling out of everything. Mm, wow. Gardening is such a crazy um, trend right now with people at home. People needing to do some something at home and kind of being freaked out in general. But um, so we've got the the crop plan done. We've got the seed order done, basically. Um, and the other big part of this is yes, sort of forecasting what we're going to be processing 
from July through November in our kitchen um, when all the fresh stuff is is in season we just like kind of schedule time to squirrel it all away um, in like a holding stage um, for manufacturer later on wow. uh, but then so th- just yeah. to give a little detail as to what that means um, for peppers, for sriracha, we ferment them. Um, so in season, we have to stem and chop and get into fermenta- fermentation barrels, all the peppers, you know, we're growing five acres of peppers this year. Um, About an acre and a half of that has been for sriracha. We we also okay. have wholesale lot of peppers too. And but how how many different peppers go into your sriracha? I, I I we I know we got the original, the habanero, the the super hot. I think there's a, a wide variety of the, uh, other peppers that go into that, right? Yeah, the original has a blend. It's a blend of you know three to five varieties: um, Fresno, jalapeno, cayenne. Um, Calabrian. Some Calabrian sometimes go in there and, you know, just, you know, a sweet tasting, medium spicy red chilies. Um, and each batch is maybe slightly different blend of peppers um, mm-hmm. based on which, you know, certain varieties are ready to harvest earlier in the season. Certain varieties aren't ready to harvest until the end of the season. So we sort of plan and stagger, um, you know, we, we, we structure the variety choice in order to have continuous harvest. Mm, okay. Yes. Yeah. Something I, I, it's cool. It's something I would just never think of, but it, I mean, that's definitely the, the case uh, where I can get habaneros, jalapeno. I mean, even the jalapenos and serranos can change uh, flavor with, with, if you get them earlier in the season versus later and, and the ghost peppers are usually coming in later. So um, I think when you're thinking, just something that's been eye-opening to me just even starting this conversation, which I knew it, but just the scale and the planning to have to go into that just for efficiencies when, when everything is so uh, important that it's, it's tight and, and as accurate as possible. Right. So in addition to just, you know, the varietal choices, we do multiple planting dates so that there is also just sort of like the early planting and the later planting to ensure that you know, when we go out to harvest for sriracha for a processing day in the kitchen, we're bringing in our full box truck load of, you know, four pallets of peppers stacked above our head. Um, <laughs> and we, we do that multiple times a week um, when we're really in the season. So we need to be able to ensure that we have a lot of peppers ready every week during pepper season. Yeah. yeah. So our, our main planting for the red chilies has like like I said, like three or four different varieties in it. <clears throat> and each of the varieties will ripen about a week after the other. So, you know, you, you get Fresnos. Those are the ones that are going to be first to ripen uh, end of August. So by by like September 1st, if we were to just leave the plants and never touch them until they're ready, we can go out and pick like 30 peppers off of each plant. And when you get a pretty long row of them, it, it's a lot of peppers. Um, but then like cayenne start coming in about a week later and jalapenos start coming after that. And once those start coming in, then you can, you know, pick the Fresnos again, cause there'll be another pick on there. And then the second planting will start coming in and then you'll have like, Oh, let's plant, let's pick, uh, you know, cayenne from this planting and you know, the Fresnos from the next planting are ready this week. So, so you get like, you know, we just want to maximize sort of like how much we can bring in 
on a continuous basis because the harvest window is only like six to eight weeks yeah. from last week of August through like the third or fourth week of uh, October. And you can't, I, I, you can't guarantee that you'll have those last weeks of October. We've been lucky with late frost and, you know, missing light frost or them not killing our peppers, yep. but you can't assume. Yeah. I think the Hudson Valley got a frost on like September 23rd this year, which is, that would have like totally screwed us. Yeah. We got just very light frost and the plants, plants came through. Yeah. So we're knocking on wood <laughs> for, for next year already. Um, yeah, and uh, just while we're talking about the sriracha, uh, you all ferment your sriracha and uh, pepper mash. Uh, it is, it's a short ferment period that you do, is that right? Yeah, so um, it's around two weeks at room temperature. So as the season gets, you know, goes into the fall, it's pretty cool. So we're, you know, having to keep them in like a heated building um, in the barrels. And then after that, they can just like, you know, we transfer them into five gallon buckets and um, they can just hang out for a year or two. In the refrigerator. In the refrigerator. So but it's we, still fermenting, but yeah. um, we don't see the pH change very much once after they go into refrigeration. So I don't actually think of it as a short fermentation. It's actually quite a long fermentation, but it's kind of a two stage. One is at the 70 degree. Yep initial fermentation and we have to reach a certain target pH before we transfer it into the refrigeration um, because our process is a um, not an acidified product. It's already, a, my gosh. Formulated acid product. Right. So the precursor ingredient, the fermented pepper mash is already acid prior to the like cooking bottling stage. So all that to say, we have specific pH we're going for in the initial fermentation and then a specific pH we're going for in the bottle. Okay. Awesome. And um, so you have the srirachas, which, which are really tasty. I feel like kind of garlic forward. And, and I, I love just using those uh, like some of my favorite, because they're at least the, the original and they're not like burn your mouth off and just super flavorful. Um, but can you talk about some of the other value added products? Cause I had the, uh, what was it? The Jardinera. Yes. Yes. Uh, can, can you, it might've cut off a little bit. Can you pronounce that again for, uh, and explain that? Cause that was, I think I met you at Boston public market and I just had so much fun kind of taking a spoonful of putting it into different, uh, things that I was cooking, especially with breakfast and, and kind of pasta. And, and, um, it was, so yeah, can you share a little bit more about some of the other value added products? Cause I think some of them are, are newer in the past year or two. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, we have the three sriracha's like you mentioned, um, we have two salsas. Um, those are like pretty widely available. Like they're, they're in whole foods, like from Boston to New York. Um, right. We're in two whole foods regions now, but we also sell those products nationwide by direct mail shipping to, you know, California and other places. Um, but since we built our own kitchen on the farm last year, we have um, developed some other products that um, we really are excited about. Um, so there's like a line of just like straight tomato products, like Italian style, just tomato puree. And well, we call that passata. Passata. It's called passata. And uh, whole peel tomatoes and sugo, which is like a vegetable tomato puree. 
Um, and all of those are really just the essential traditional pantry staples in Italy. Um, we both had worked on farms in Italy back in like 2003, um, separately before our lives merged. And, um, you know, just learned about that as a very basic fundamental cooking staple. And it's something that we've been doing for our own household use for 15 years and finally figured out how to sort of scale it up a bit. Cool. And then um, the other uh, product that we have developed um, is called Jardinera, which is a traditional type of um, mixed vegetable pickle from Italy. Uh, it's really an Italian American thing now. So um, different you know, regions around the country have uh, a tradition of using Jardinera in sandwiches. So in Chicago, um, the Italian beef sandwich, which is a sloppy mess of a delicious, um, you know, meal, which is like a hot roast beef sandwich that has like, I don't know, mayonnaise, lettuce, tomato, and jardinera. It's, it's like a like, grinder. It's, it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's awesome. And usually it's like a <laughs> spicy jardinera because there's, you know, sometimes they're spicy, sometimes they're not. But in yep. Chicago, I think more, more often than not, it's spicy. Um, and then like in, in New Orleans, they have the muffalettas uh, sandwich, which is like mixed cold cuts, provolone, and um, a jardinera. To, I think it's called olive salad. There, right. Usually with some salty olives mixed in. Ours doesn't have olives, obviously, because we don't grow olives in New England. But um, the other traditional uh, vegetables that are in it are cauliflower, celery, carrot, and um, peppers. peppers. So we grow all of these vegetables on the farm. And um, as with all of our products, there's like a two stage of um, preparation. So the first is just to like get the main ingredient that's harvested on our farm able to be uh, held in, in a preserved state. So for the sriracha, we use fermentation and then we can hold it in the cooler. For the salsa, we um, will roast like the chilies and the onions and then we'll uh, puree them and freeze them. Uh, and then for the jardinera, we're just making like a quick pickle. Um, so mm. we'll, bring in, we'll bring in like three or four pallets full of cauliflower We'll, you know, cut them up into florets. We put them in buckets and we just pour hot brine on them and then stick them in the cooler and they'll keep in there for, you know, a year and they stay crunchy. The other notable thing about the jardiniera is that all of those vegetables are harvested, harvested at different times in the season. Yeah, yeah, because cauliflower is more of a November, December. And yeah, yeah, it's all comes together. We do a spring planting and a fall planting. Okay. So by spring, you know, it's not ready to harvest until like July, but yeah. So all of, we do these, each of those ingredients are harvested and pre-pickled individually, separately on a different timeline. And then only once we've got them all, can we make the product. And what's also notable about the jardiniera is it's not just a, like a brine pickle, it's a oil and vinegar pickle. pickle. Um, and it's also got our own dried oregano in there as well. Yum. So one of the reasons we wanted to make jardinera is because uh, I had like cooked a, a recipe from um, Peter Meehan's Power Vegetables. That's where we got the recipe for it or, or the, the, where, how we developed the recipe. But I was like, this product is ridiculously hard to make. <laughs> so, you know, there's not going to be anybody else trying to make this. And <laughs> you got to figure out how to do it. And it 
the first, um, yeah, because there's oil and vinegar, if you get a huge vat of this brine, it's going to separate. Mm. So, and you don't want to make an emulsion because then it, it's like a salad dressing texture. You don't want, you don't, you don't want that because it's going to make your product look weird. Um, so we had to figure out how to like actually get, you know, the pickle mixture, the brine, you know, the vinegar brine and oil all into the jar in the right proportions, you know, and do a thousand jars a day. Wow. So it's very labor intensive. It's all hand packed. Um, I'm just thinking of like a Cuisinart with just the pulse that just kind of does that, but <laughs> that doesn't work on a, a huge scale. Um, but yeah, so we had, we had some trial and error about, about this uh, last year. You know, we had some pretty rough days in the kitchen where everyone was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Why did we ever decide we wanted to do this? But we really figured it out. Good. So like we take the glass and um, we just put like a, you know, like a half inch of oil in each jar. And then so we're, that, that was how we that was like the breakthrough. We, we could actually just like put the oil in every jar before we fill the jars with the pickles. And then we can just like you know, top it off with the vinegar brine. Okay. Wow. Now you, cool. now you got the secret. So, <laughs> um, and so Tim, I, I know that you kind of oversee a lot of the production with the value added products and, um, and you all have quite a, a crew now, which I want to talk about later, but, um, it sounds like that's something where it's kind of like, okay, we, we have this idea. We want to make this product. Um, but it sounds like kind of a collaborative effort, especially when making it, it sounds like there's a lot of stuff trying to see how, how to make things work. And did that kind of accelerate when you got your own, made your own kitchen? Because I know before then, at least when I started first meeting with you all, uh, you were working out of Greenfield, but I'm curious if that playground for creativity and, and also just making better products uh, really accelerated once you had your own space and kitchen. Yeah, the quality really has gone up since we've had our own space. Working in a shared kitchen um, facility, you know, was a great way to start, but obviously, you know, it wasn't really our, our own place. And, you know, we had to get a lot of our stuff in and out, you know, so it was, it was pretty annoying. Well, um, the challenge there is that we couldn't, we reached, we reached the, the max of what we could do in that space because we were already in there three days a week during pepper season um, and had to book those days for processing our ingredients in January for harvest anticipated September. Wow. And, you know, there's just no flexibility. So we had already reached the limit in the last year we were there. We didn't increase our production at all because we just simply couldn't get any extra days. Um, and we let peppers that were ready to process go by in the field because we were just, you know, they had no flexibility for us. So we had lots of ideas for new products we wanted to roll out, but like we couldn't even achieve the scale that we wanted to and could sell um, and could produce in the space. So we had to just sort of back burner that until we had our own space. And having our own space has not only allowed us to, you know, adjust our process to equipment that we use now. Um, but primarily the biggest innovation is that we're in there every day. You know, I have a crew of six of us, you know, most days. Um, and we're Monday through Friday from like July till, you know, basically 
December something is when we started scaling back to three days a week of kitchen production. And this year, I think we're going to be able to bring our kitchen crew on even earlier in the season, um, you know, to utilize those folks, um, you know, to start harvesting in the field and, you know, do some of the field work to get the peppers and tomatoes where they need to be for harvest. Um, because the, just the volume of what we're doing of what we're producing in these large plantings for kitchen use has grown. So, um, yeah, being in our own kitchen has allowed us that freedom and flexibility to launch some of the new products. However, we are finding that just the demand has skyrocketed and we have this whole other line of hot sauces that with scheduled process approved and like label design, but you know, don't have any more days during pepper season to, to add that without detracting from our ability to meet the targets that we have for the existing products. And that wow. we I'm intrigued. Did you mind sharing? Uh, can you can you give a little bit of a preview of of what's what's uh, coming down the hot sauce line? No, it's funny. At this point, I don't even know if we're gonna make. They them, may never but. happen. Um, <laughs> but, but the other thing, the other innovation this year is that we um, built a huge dehydrator and have been doing dried chilies for a number of years in a very small format, mm-hmm. um, and that has also started to take off. So you know. If we're going to expand anything, it's there because we have this line of dried whole chilies, you know, 12 varieties that we produce for that. And now a product line of four um, powders, smoked chipotle, smoked hot and smoked sweet paprika and Calabrian chili flakes. And so just, you know, just trying to ramp that up, which has this amazing benefit that aside from washing the peppers and loading the dehydrator and unloading them when they're dry and stashing them away, a lot of that labor can be put off to winter. So we can mm. keep our kitchen crew busy all winter, um, you know, stemming and grinding the powders and filling those jars and, um, you know, just just pouching up the, the, the whole chilies. And just, you know, everything that we do around this is about planning the full year's like labor. I was um, gonna say, it, it all comes back to the planning <laughs> of, of the one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the dry chilies are pretty cool because you know, we're able to bring, you know, this past season, we did 30,000 pounds of peppers for our sriracha, but we probably, you know, did maybe another five to 6,000 pounds of dried chilies. So, you know, if we're processing those into like powders and stuff, then, then, you know, they're just getting, you know, dehydrated and put in trash bags. And then this time of year, we can, you know, come in, it's the middle of winter and but we're still stemming peppers. So it's like plenty of work for people and there's not much else to do this time of year on the farm. So um, that's not entirely true. (laughs) We are running out of like all of, you know, we have green salad greens in, in high tunnels and we have stored carrots and cabbages and radicchio and stuff. But, you know, a lot of that, you know, sells really well early on in the winter. So you know, December, January, early January is busy. And then, you know, after we come back from this break, it's going to be slim, you know? Right. So, you know, in, in scaling up our value added production, it has been very consciously, you know, not only just what ideas do we have of products we want to make, but it's just taking this bigger picture view for who do we have working with us on the farm and, you know, how do we retain them by offering year-round employment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
that has very much been part of this whole vision is like, you know, why we were able to justify in making the huge investment to build the kitchen here on the farm is part of this vision of being able to keep um, our crew intact all year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes uh, complete sense. Um, so I, I, I think you wrote a, a craft hot sauce profile on, on our website, I think five or six years ago. And uh, you mentioned, I think that you, did you both meet at, at the Union Square Green Market? That's a true yep. story. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I, I wonder, I, I would love to know if um, you don't mind me asking your story to getting there, because it, it sounds like um, you were both uh, had spent some time in Italy separately. I don't know if that was before or after, but um, Caroline, I know you, you, I think you on the website, you mentioned you grew up in New York City, but I'm curious if where kind of the, the culinary agriculture interest came from. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Queens and then we moved to Long Island when I was in fourth grade. So, you know, New York City and environs, you could say. Um, and I went to school in Chicago, studied literature and um, came back to New York to work as a journalist um, and, you know, increasingly became disillusioned with that and more and more obsessed with cooking and cookbooks and um, just finding that was a personal um, interest and like just a real way that I found value and meaning in connecting with other people um, and understanding culture. And so I just, you know, tried to extricate myself from journalism a couple of times. And one of those was to go to culinary school. And I went to the French Culinary Institute and um, did my degree. And that was sort of a, I would say a 9-11, um, you know, change of career, inspired mm -hmm. change of career. Um, that sort of brought home to me that I just, you know, should pursue this thing that I had been interested in and take it seriously and see where it takes me. And, you know, never had any idea that, I, I didn't really expect that I was gonna land as a chef. Um, I thought maybe I'd be a food writer um, and certainly didn't anticipate owning a 70 acre vegetable farm. <laughs> well, and what about you, you, Tim? Well, I, you know, I sort of ended up at the green market as a summer job when I was going to college. And um, I just, uh, I had some friends who were from my hometown who were living in Brooklyn. And she was actually a, a, like a career advisor at Cooper Union. Um, and, and I was like, they needed someone to house sit for them for a summer because they were going on a motorcycle trip. Uh, but, but I was like, sure, I, you know, I'll, I'll move to Brooklyn. It sounds like a nice opportunity to, to live in the city. And, um, and she kind of like told me about the farmer's market. And at that point I had really kind of decided that I wanted to farm. So working at the market was really cool for me because, um, I got to like meet all of the different farm owners, uh, yeah. that, you know, had been going there for you know, a couple of decades, some of them, and, you know, talking to them and just kind of like being this young kid who, you know, was really jazzed about vegetables and was really, you know, interested in, in gardening and stuff. And uh, every single one of them was like, don't do this. It's like, <laughs> you know, such a, a ridiculous, like way to spend your time and money. Um, but I was like, you know, 
totally naive and and uh, it was great because if I was smarter, I probably would have never started this business. Um, <clears throat> but but yeah, so you know, I just kind of worked there for a summer job, and then and then I went to Italy um, to do uh, woofing, which is like uh, volunteer work on organic farms. Yeah, and and then when I came back, um, Caroline had actually taken my job, and um, and everyone there was like, "Oh, you're gonna meet this uh, this new person there, you know, also interested <laughs> in Italy," and they were gonna plan on taking the trip there like the following year. And so, like that year, I actually worked on one of the farms that sold at the at the green market, and, oh, and cool. became friends. But awesome. um, but yeah, I mean, you know, definitely had a lot of mentors um, who were farmers at that market, and and now we have peers, you know, who are slightly younger than us, who are are farm, you know, farming in Pennsylvania or Hudson Valley and, and they sell to at the green market. So we, we feel like we're still pretty connected down there, even though we, we really decided like this, like market, you know, New, Manhattan, New York city farmers market, like dawn till dusk lifestyle was just not what we wanted to do. And, and living in a place like Western mass that, you know, we, we have a market like right here in our own community. When we were starting out, we were just, um, you know, selling produce at like, you know, local restaurants and, and not having to, you know, do the kinds of crazy stuff that we do now shipping, you know, all over the East coast. But yeah, it was a very conscious decision to not, um, we could have probably wherever we started our farm, even here in Massachusetts, we could have chosen to market in green market. Um, but we, we just, I think a lot of what defines our choices is kind of perversely taking the harder way. Um, so like, you know, I think Tim took the challenge from those farmers saying, don't do it to say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way to make it work. And, um, and I think for us, we, we just wanted to um, serve the people in our own community and not just truck in from four hours away. Um, and, you know, ironically, we do now definitely deliver food to our, our neighbors through the Sunderland Farm Collaborative that we launched this year, which is now a home delivery um, option that serves all of the towns in our area. But, um, you know, for a couple of years there, when we stopped doing farmer's markets and had transitioned to selling completely wholesale, um, we really didn't have a way for our local neighbors to, to access our vegetables um, because we had sort of moved to working a lot more with distributors and, um, you know, most of the food was leaving the area, except for the stuff that we delivered to our local restaurants. But, you know, as we all know this year, that has not really been a viable thing. And so we, we, we had been very consciously over the last couple of years, wanting to find a way to make our vegetables more available in our community. And that's what was really exciting when we struck upon this idea for the collaborative to, to, to make that possible. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been really um, inspiring just to see the the quick changes and pivots, and I think home delivery and just thinking about local. Um, I don't know if it was me just being super paranoid in March or just me being at farmers markets all the time, but I didn't step into a supermarket for uh, like two or three months just because I was going to markets and and there's uh, delivery services available as well. So it, it's been um, feel like we could talk ages uh, about just the the changes that that COVID have uh, has brought 
But um, I did want to talk a, a little bit about Sunderland in the Pioneer Valley in Western Mass uh, because uh, I, I grew to love it spending my four years at, at UMass Amherst and going there uh, every year just and loving it. But um, I would also spend all my mornings rowing on the Connecticut River and just seeing the banks and seeing the extreme flooding that could happen a lot as well. Um, and in your region and kind of Sunderland and Western Mass, there's a lot of uh, agriculture history, whether that be tobacco or asparagus. Um, and I don't want to, uh, I, I want to ask about the soil because I think it, it, it's, it's unique. Um, and if you could tell me about kind of cultivating the land, and I don't know if that has to do with uh, deciding to, to be an organic certified farm, um, but could you kind of share a little bit more about what may or may not be unique with, with yeah. kind of your region? Yeah, I, I would love to talk about that, sure. Um, I went to Hampshire College um, <clears throat> from like uh, 2001 to 2005 and when I, I the tobacco for some reason the tobacco was like this sort of like I don't know it's just it looks so cool in the fields it's like this gorgeous like tropical plant and they when they harvest it in August then you drive around you see it in the barns it's hanging yeah. up green and all the doors are and the, and the barns are open it's so cool yeah. so like I was really struck by this area and like the towns like right along the river you know Hadley, Sunderland, uh, Waitley, Hatfield like just some of these communities just look like wow there's like a lot of farming going on here and it you know it has this like historic character to it and and like the, like like you said the land is very sort of nationally known for being of good quality because uh, there was like a big glacial lake here during the ice age and after the um, lake drained out it left all of you know basically all of Vermont's topsoil is like down here now <laughs> so, so you know there's I mean it, this is another aspect to our story of like me really wanting to do like the thing that was almost impossibly hard, mm -hmm. which is like trying to get some of this land, which is totally not for sale um, at all. Uh, so we, you know, when we first um, started the farm, we were just renting like this little abandoned piece and it, it was like right in the center of Hadley. And I was like, oh, it must be like amazing soil. But it turned out that like, this particular plot that we had had been like eroded in the 1936 flood wow. and like had no topsoil at all. It was like totally infertile, but here we are in the center of Hadley. There was not, there was no surprise was like, why it was being abandoned and uncultivated. Right. <laughs> we actually had a shot at getting on it. So when we bought the farm in Sunderland, it was kind of like the same thing we're like oh like this is cool like look at all this farmland because our piece is like you know this little strip in the middle of like a 300 400 acre like expanse of farm fields that have lots of different farms using it um but you know like the land was for sale because it wasn't really the best piece um well and it wasn't actually on the market we um found a little farmhouse that we could afford and this was the field behind it 
And so we looked on the map and we reached out to the owner and he wasn't the one actively farming it. He'd been leasing it out to another farm for a long time. And he was receptive um, because it was being sold or he was able to sell it to us for the full development price of if he were to try to put houses on it. And because Massachusetts has the APR program, the Agricultural Preservation Restriction Program, we took the leap of faith to purchase it at the developable price, put in an application to put it into preservation and succeeded in doing that. Wow. Um, yeah, there's totally no other way that we could have purchased land. I mean, if we had waited for something to like come up on Zillow, like, you know, <laughs> like farm, like, you know, you drive around and you're like, oh, well, that, like there's a historic farm that is not being operated. Uh, you know, the land's probably just leased out to somebody else. And like, you know, there's a big old historic hay barn and you know, a tobacco barn or whatever, but th- those properties like never come up for sale around here. Right. If they transfer, which they do, they just, you know, the farms that are known and are active and have purchase power, um, you know, yeah, they, they, they just make informally one phone call and they transfer. just sell their land, you know, like they don't have to list it. They don't. So, you know, when we first started out, it was, you know, we had the seven acres that we bought, we put it into APR uh, the state paid us um, some money to like. They purchased preserve, the pres- development rights it is basically what land. that is. So that amount of money is what allowed us to sort of really launch our farm because we maintained the mortgage at the full development price. And now it had been reset at the ag value. And we took that cash to sort of allow yeah, we, us to go on. We built some greenhouses. We built a pack room and, you know, then we were off and running, but um for the first like five years that we were here in Sunderland, we couldn't get access to any other leases or any other pieces of land. And, you know, it kind of dawned us on us during those years that, you know, seven acres of maybe not the greatest soil, you know, our piece on our main farm is like pretty wet. So we had a couple of like really wet seasons in there. And we were just kind of like, oh, man, I don't know if we can make it, you know, on mm. this, you know, doing it really small and doing a lot of the work ourselves. And it should also be noted, we always grew organically with all organic methods, but couldn't certify that field because it was just a skinny, narrow strip and fully and we're surrounded by conventional farms everywhere we have ever farmed. We're like the little organic um, oasis. So that meant that it was all buffer. Um, you know, in organic certification, if you're right next to a conventional farm, you have to have 50 feet of buffer. Um, oh, okay. our, so that if there's any drip, like 160 feet wide. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not it was uncertifiable. It was not practical. So it was only, you know, that was 2007. It wasn't until 2014 that we were able to buy the adjacent piece after all of those years of communication with that family um, that wanted to sell it to us that, you know, long story, as with all things, there was a mother who had to die. And then the eight siblings had to figure it out, you know, to make the sale. Yeah. Like literally the the only way that we purchased farmland is like by waiting for people to die. (laughs) So it is not, it is not like something you just go and do. Yeah. But one of one of the main um, goals that we have pursued in this, you know, 15 years of trying to establish our farm and get access to land has been converting conventional land to organic. 
um, certification and practice. And it's only this year, well, 2020, we were able to purchase a field across the street from us here at our home farm that we literally have been in communication with the owners for 10 years, um, finally got that um, purchase through. And that is going to allow us to have enough land to really improve our cover cropping and increase the amount of time that we keep things in full season cover crop and um, really build up the soil and improve our rotation. And, you know, it's been a really long-term goal to get to this point Mm -hmm. that we're now finally going to be able to put into practice. Wow. I feel like real farmers may may laugh at me uh, trying to pull lessons from, I I watched the, the biggest little farm uh, that was kind of a, a popular documentary that just like two people in Santa Monica were like, oh, we want to make a farm and they got a documentary and I think they got loads of investment to do it. But they were just talking about how making a really diverse um, kind of growth on the farms and having animals, but doing a lot of upfront work will kind of make a kind of a flywheel that will kind of keep uh everything in check uh just naturally but i think uh the, the lesson that i'm the thing that i'm picking up on here is just it, it takes a long time to kind of get things to to work out whether Either that be a boatload of money or a, a lot of yes. years yeah. or you know or both and and as we were <laughs> even a boatload of money if we had had it we couldn't have bought the land anyway yeah yeah i mean um you know we when we started our farm we kind of didn't have the luxury to put in a lot of those improvements before we had to be like operating full, you know, full tilt and, you know, doing sales and, you know, harvesting every day. And, um, you know, it was something that we were definitely aware of from the very beginning was that, <clears throat> you know, rehabilitating soils that have been over farmed for generations is not something that you're going to do like in the first couple of years, you know, this is, this is a generational project. And, you know, even just starting a farm from, from scratch and, you know, um, trying to make a go of it and trying to like make it sustainable long-term, that's also like a 30 year project. So we're about halfway in and we're (laughs) starting We're actually, we really are starting to um, be able to, on a very regular and very systematic way, like um, put in some of these regenerative practices that we've wanted to do for a long time. But like when, when we didn't have enough land to really feel like we could produce enough to have enough sales, to have any kind of like net profits that we could, you know, live off of, you know, we kept scaling it up and up and up. And we'd never had enough land. So we would be like double cropping, triple cropping, you know, where we're, you know, we're planting like spring lettuce and then we're, you know, harvesting it and then planting carrots or something. So we're really just like overusing our own land, you know, in the first, say, five to 10 years of the farm. Because like our main goal was to try to like keep our business. Yeah. And um, as we've been able to access other pieces of land, just because now we're a little bit more known um, in the community here. And um, so we've been able to get on some more land. We kind of hit the the scale that we wanted to be at production wise, like in 2017. And so we've been kind of tapering off of our total production for the last couple of years. And we've been able to 
put a lot of our land into full season fallow or, um, you know, instead of planting a second crop, just planting a cover crop that'll be able to be full size. Um, so part of this, crop. part of this vision is also, it's not that our business, you know, you mentioned tapering off the production. It's, it's our business has continued to grow because we have allocated more of the land, more of what we grow to what we use and transform into our value added products. And also higher value wholesale crops. Right. So mm. it's, it's a, it's a lot about um, sort of strategic decisions about yeah. what we're growing and where it's being sold and what is being transformed into our higher value value added products, which, you know, that was always a good question. We, in the beginning of the, you know, prog project for us, as we scaled up was like, is it really value added? Are we actually going to see that this, these crops are better off going down this channel to the kitchen um, versus selling it, you know, in a much more short-term sales um, and payment situation, you know, selling them fresh because the value added just requires a lot of upfront investment in terms of infrastructure and labor, um, you know, so we're finally, and we kept scaling that up. So that just meant more investment and more yeah. spending in the near term for a promised, you know, longer term payout. Um, so it's been, it's been a real, you know, leap of faith to continuously year after year, keep growing with the promise that someday it will, it'll all make sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Um, I was going to just say that I, I know your, your crew has, has grown every, or I don't know if it has grown every year, but I, I'd imagine it has. Um, and I remember uh, I was at Chili Fest in, uh, in 2019 and I was talking with uh, Fiona Palumbo from Ghost Run Farm and, and Fractured Sauce, and and she she's also kind of a, a seed to sauce uh, and and a co-owner of a farm with her uh, partner Shane, and she was telling me she's like oh man like the kitchen garden crew is there, there's something like s really special about them, and and she was just explaining um, to me with somebody without ever working on a farm just the importance of a crew and and how um, that, it, it, that there, it, it's like a unit. And, and now I'm, I'm tr trying to uh, remember what, what exactly she was saying, but she, she really sent something uh, important, uh, cool and special about your crew. So what, how would you try to describe the, the mentality of a crew? And, and if you can even begin to kind of ex explain kind of what your, your crew is all about and how it's evolved over the years. Yeah. I mean, we have really special people who are like as deeply invested in this project as we are, um, who are working with us. And um, there's Max. Oh, is that Max coming in now? Hey. Hey. Hi. Yeah. So um, Max is our production manager and uh, you're entering, I think, your eighth season working wow. here. Uh, I am, yeah. Yeah. And oh, this field that we were talking about um, across the street that we were finally able to buy after 10 years um, has a house on it. And Max and his fiance were able to move into that house um, and live across the street from the farm, which is also, you know, a really important um, milestone. Um, so, yeah, he's a really great example of somebody who um, came to Kitchen Garden fresh 
graduated from UMass um, Stockbridge, the agricultural program, and or maybe it was sustainable ag. I think he he did Stockbridge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, started just on the harvest crew, learning everything, um, and over the years demonstrated just like a real interest in learning more and um, taking on more and transferred transitioned into the production team and now leads that team, which was, you know, an area that Tim personally managed um, for many years and has been able to almost fully pass on to Max to, to manage that crew. And, um, you know, I'm staring at the crop maps that Max has painstakingly measured the fields and, um, you know, is very integral in the planning process with us now. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we have, you know, you mentioned UMass, we have a bunch of people who have come out of the sustainable ag program at UMass, which is only about five minutes away from the farm. So that's been an incredible resource. And just, you know, we take, we like to take good care of our, our people. And we like to try to recruit people who are really serious and really care a lot. Um, and yeah, you know, the longer that we can keep them around, the better. And so part of our effort to scale the farm is just to be able to like, you know, not have to train new people every year. And, um, and then, you, you know, you have people like Max, who, you know, their mission in life is to just make the farm better and to improve the systems, to make everything more efficient and make it less damaging physically and, you know, research new equipment that we can get and different methods and Im improve our irrigation. And just like, you know, Max has really taken the reins and like run with it and, and really revolutionized, I think, like our, our production systems, like over the last couple of years. I mean, as the farm has grown and as we have taken on new projects, um, you know, what we've put in place is a lot more specialized roles and specialized crews so that, the people who work on those teams can focus really more concertedly um, and, and just be able to do it better by really immersing themselves in those specific areas of the farm. But the other part that's really crucial about Kitchen Garden is because we have so many different aspects that all are interrelated, you know, Max is so valuable because not only has he had physical, personal experience on all aspects of the farm, including the kitchen. He, for years, when we were first doing the sriracha, was in the kitchen operating the, um, the mill, you know, just really understands everything that goes into all the things that are happening mm -hmm. on the farm. And um, that's, that's really essential. So we have other people um, in equally important roles, Lily, our sales manager, um, Sim thing went through the UMass Sustainable Ag program and um, was, was the washroom, washroom manager, yeah. has been the maybe hasn't been the harvest manager, but very much worked on that team and, um, you know, has worked with me to develop and to run with all kinds of new systems for developing our mail order, packing shipping systems, and, um, you know, just th there's, there's more happening on the farm than Tim and I can handle. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's just so much complexity and, um, you know, we really rely on these folks who are just like creatively driven and like, you know, problem solvers and also just like so focused on helping build the community that we yeah. have here because um, people 
you know, have been working together collaboratively for years um, and can, can take on challenges by working together on their own with support from us um, to, to, I don't know, the, to move the farm forward, which is really what our crew has, has been able to do. And I imagine Chili Fest is such a awesome event to see that all unfold with the community there. And, and there's so much work behind it. And, and just shout out to putting on like the most joyful, fun festival uh, to be a part of. And, and recently it's been amazing. It's been awesome that it's been amazing weather, but uh, I mean, it was tough that there wasn't a chili fest to the public, but I, I realized that there was kind of a, a company chili fest. So can, can you describe kind of, I'd imagine it wasn't uh, as many, as much face painting, but I could be wrong with that. But I, what was chili fest looking like this year? We had a live real permanent tattoo um, situation. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was really uh, so touching to me, honestly, that, when we made the determination that like, we just couldn't host Chili Fest during COVID in September this year, um, our crew couldn't really imagine living without it. And um, Grace, who's been working on our harvest crew and then the washroom for three years now, took it upon herself to organize, um, you know, a, a, like a family. Yeah, make it a community effort. And like, you know, there were documents that were circulated and you had to like fill out you know, what, what you were going to contribute. And so it was like a real community thing. Um, we had one of our um, kitchen crew members design a new like 2020 KG Chili Fest logo and set up a screen printing station. Um, we had an amazing hot sauce competition, just all staff um, oh. entries and um, a beautiful display of all the chili varieties um, pinned to a piece of barn board. It was just gorgeous. Um, and then we had like the most epic um, chili eating contest. Oh, yeah. oh geez. <laughs> Five of our like team members and uh, maybe one was somebody's partner, but like they ate all the peppers. It was just oh, like, it was really brutal to watch. Yeah. I, 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 I was proud of us for, <laughs> putting putting out you know such intrepid volunteers to uh to subject themselves to i was able to fulfill a dream of mine uh to get a maple cotton candy station and mm -hmm. my daughter uh operated at all day so that was a dream come true and tim cooked his famous chili fest tacos so it would not be chili fest without that yeah absolutely <laughs> Well, I have a couple just quick questions, I think, to end it. And they, they both kind of have to do with your Instagram, which is epic and uh, definitely recommend people give it a, a follow. Is it Kate, uh, what, what, is it Kitchen Garden Farm? Or we Kate? have three that yeah. are associated. So KG Farmer is the original Instagram, Tim's personal account. Um, we do have kitchen.garden.farm as well. And mine is Caroline Carter Pam, but yeah, the uh, the traction I think is on KG Farmer because he's 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 speaks the truth there, you know. Yeah, and and, and yeah, I, I've seen some like takeovers or an ask me anything's that have just been like you've been really open with information that's been just really insightful. Um, but it's also been fun for me to like geek out uh, the new equipment that you guys get when you had your uh, big smoker and, and uh, dehydrator. Um, but 
what's the, your, your favorite piece of equipment that you've purchased? Hmm. I don't know. I kind of have a love hate relationship with every piece. <laughs> well, just today, uh, Tim was loading some pr- products that we, some pallets of salsa and stuff that we made last week down to the warehouse and managed to knock off the new chili pepper grinder off the dock oh, and no. ran over like, with the ran, tractor. Ran oh, no. <laughs> brutal. It still works. It's just got this like massive dent in the side of it. But I don't know. Like I, I would have to answer that question you know, maybe not like in the way you might think I would answer it, but like, you know, I started this whole like thing with the farm and the growing vegetables and making food as like, it was a way for me to like have a life where I was like creating things with my hands and like actually making something out of nothing, you know, and, um, and just like doing it because I wanted to do it because I was interested in it and like it made me happy and like doing it as a business, you know, you do, you are able to do more if you have mechanization, but you know, it's, I have this like weird relationship with it where like, I don't particularly like, you know, moving pallets around with the tractor like I just you know it's like sure like I have to do it because like we made seven pallets of stuff this week and I need to like put them in this warehouse but you know that's like I don't know I I just like cooking I like yeah eating stuff I like you know making the powders and I don't know I just like I just like working with food you know yeah the equipment is like, it, it'll just allows, it allows us to do more and to like do it for real as like a way of getting our products to more people. But, I, I will say mine is always the, the confectioner's funnel because uh-huh. I used to take a ladle and put it into a small funnel and I, I had a lot less burns after that. Um, yeah, but, for sure. Uh, and every I would say that each piece of equipment has, you know, a little bit of a, I don't know, Tim's physically the one, like I pass him every jar and bottle and he fills every jar and bottle. And, you know, at a certain point, it's like, you know, you're one with the machine and you can't live without it. But on the other hand, um, it'd be nice to, to not have to do that. (laughs) I don't know. Like I like our, I mean, our filler is, is, is a good filler, but you know, you know, like making making a hot sauce in your home kitchen for yourself and your friends is just really different from what we do when we're at work. And like, you know, that, that's been interesting to me too, you know, figuring out, like I was talking about with the Jardinera, like, you know, it's one thing that you could like make this recipe and like serve it to some friends when they come over. But it's another thing to figure out how to do 16,000, you know, in a season. Yeah, so yeah. like- that I mean, it, I, I'm not gonna lie, that is interesting to me. And that's been a fun process. And like, getting five people, six people all in the kitchen and like working, doing different things, but all in, you know, all as like one sort of human machine like that, that's exciting to me. Um, feeling like we're really productive, and we're really doing something that's really good quality. Yeah, I think that we we really enjoy when we can get our team 
to the point where there's just like all nonverbal communication where it's like this mm, choreographed yeah. dance and everybody can understand and anticipate what is the next step that needs to happen. There's so much gratification when we show up, we all fall into our roles and, you know, make the magic happen. And we can actually have like really interesting conversations about life and politics and, you know, business and, you know, we have really high quality communication that can happen in the kitchen because we don't have to talk about the steps of the yeah. work. We know what we're doing. I, I was doing some reflection just because sometimes I, I have phases where I just, I, I feel like I need to come back to that. And, and, and it's those moments where I, I have it with my, my brother, Nick, my, my uh, friend, uh, Ben, and uh, this guy, Matt, who's been helping me out in the kitchen. And, and it's just like when we're all in sync together and like, it just, that's, I don't, it's hard to describe what that magic is, but it, it's, it's just really energizing and, and fun to see that happen. Um, and and uh, my kind of last uh, question, you guys, the Instagram doesn't stop when you guys go on vacation. And I love that when it happens because I, I've seen uh like your, I think you guys went out to like LA or, or in California last year, and I just seen all like the carnitas tacos and the different farms and everything. Um, it seems like you guys love to travel and also have that uh, trial the different foods while while you're there and your connections as well. But where are some of your like top destinations to travel once uh, these restrictions and COVID is behind us? And maybe. Uh, I know you're all super busy too. So if time isn't, isn't much of a factor uh, in terms of if you could jet anywhere instantly. Well, we have an active plan in the works if, if and when it's possible to go to Vietnam and eat some amazing food and tour some farms. And um, that's like, that's the one that's being actively talked about currently. Cool. Yeah. Um, with the, we're hoping to go with a, a friend and former roommate of ours who now is a um, a restaurant owner in Chicago. Um, but, and it's also just yeah. the, the other key is that, um, you know, we both have seasonal, you know, impacted businesses. So a destination where there's amazing food and culture to learn about. And that is like decent weather in the winter. Right. In January. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've always like been dreaming of going to Mexico cause you know, we haven't really gone there, um, that much. And I don't know, there's a, there, there would be like a lot to learn, um, and to experience. I, I would really love to go to Mexico, but you know, yeah, like we've gone to LA and San Francisco a bunch and to Seattle and Portland. So we, we, a lot of our travel in the last couple of years has been out to the West coast and we have it's nice to go out there because we have friends who we've met um, just through like the farmer networks and on Instagram. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Just like actually connecting with people who are, they're really doing like the kind of the same stuff that we're doing, but it's on the West coast. So it's like a little different and just being, being able to, you know, meet up with people and compare notes and. Yeah. I would say Instagram has been amazing for that community building for us. Um, You know, Tim got on there, I think, sort of fairly early on, um, but we have made a lot of meaningful, real, significant relationships with other farmers and, you know, makers. Yeah, back um, where the, where, when the internet was nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our corner of Instagram is still pretty nice. Um, 
Yeah. So it really is, you know, the way that we interact on Instagram is about like connecting, learning, sharing, and then like going out to be in person to see and, and share in real life, you know, what, what we're doing. Um, and just building that, that network to share that knowledge. And I don't know, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, that we have this like real community of people that we work with on our farm. We have this really amazing Western mass farmer network of, and, you know, with the collaborative, it's expanded to not just vegetable farmers that I've always known, but, um, you know, that dairies and yeah. Um, orchards and fruit people. And yeah. So, um, and then to actually be able to leap to other areas of the country and the world to, to make those connections in real life through Instagram is super cool. Awesome. Well, Tim and Caroline, thank you so much. It's, uh, this was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So it's been awesome watching your hot sauce take off too. And uh, love, love watching all your new development of your new products. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's definitely fun. I, I think to echo what you're all saying, it's like the community, it's the enjoyment and creating do and having to wear so many different hats, but um, I think it's the the little lessons that you pick up on and and uh, just the growth and everything. But it's 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 always great to have other people to get pull inspiration from, um, whether they be you or, or different companies or different people that you meet in your local community or, or market and everything. So it's it's just a fun playground uh, for sure. So definitely. Thank you to Tim and Caroline for taking their time. Uh, we talked about doing this for years, but I'm so glad we had a chance to do it to kick off 2021. We have some more podcasts lined up and we'll be releasing our next one in two weeks with Poor Devil Pepper Company in the Hudson Valley. They make some really tasty fermented hot sauces. And we actually met for the first time at Chili Fest a few years back. So if you want to get the first alert when this episode goes out, uh, be sure to subscribe to the Craft Hot Sauce podcast on your favorite podcast player. And we'd also appreciate a cheeky little review uh, in the meantime. We're also brought to you by the Craft Hot Sauce Shop, an online marketplace where I curate and share hot sauces and the stories behind those products. We have a really wide range of independent small batch hot sauce makers that have all taken their time uh, and collaborated with us to share their story. Um, so I really appreciate all these hot sauce makers taking their time and their busy schedule to do that. But I also really have a strong passion in connecting people with the best hot sauces for them. So I'll give some personalized hot sauce recommendations. If you're seeking out that perfect hot sauce, drop me a line at brian at crafthotsauce.com or check out our website to do that. So that's it for now, but everyone stay well and stay healthy and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks.